Um, girls just want to have fundamental rights. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, our final guest tonight is Classics Editor of the Times Literary Supplement, one of the triumvirate reimagining civilizations, plural, and now presenter of Front Row, a vast improvement on Giles Corrin. She is Professor of Classics at Newnham College, Cambridge, and author of bestsellers including Pompeii, SPQR, and Women in Power. She is, to quote Megan Beach, a classy, classic classicist. It's time to Hail Mary! <laughs> Thanks for this. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. 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 Oh. Phew. Lovely. <laughs> no. That's nice. Have you forgiven me for my very bad Latin and Greek at the start? Yeah, just. 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 Yeah, okay. Just. Fine. Um, we'll, we'll have a lesson or two <laughs> later, after. Brilliant. Okay. Great. Glass of wine. Yes. Latin lesson. I'm into that. <laughs> I never thought I'd say it, but I am. <laughs> Extremely sexy. That's in essence. Um. <laughs> I mean that quite seriously. There is no other language in the world where the first verb you learn is to love. Oh. Right? <laughs> See? <laughs> Um, we were talking about, about where to start with these, um, with these two fantastic books um, and we thought that we might start um, in the very, very, uh, very, very distant past, um, not with a person but with a statue um, and a story and that seemed to me to be the right place uh, to begin particularly because the part of the story that you were talking about didn't actually really make it to the TV screen. No, but um, doing TV is, is fantastically interesting. It's also fantastically frustrating because you make these wonderful little bits of voice, pieces to camera, of discussions, and then at the last minute they leave, you know, and you never see them again. But the great thing about making a TV... A, a TV book, is you can put them all back. Yeah. You know? You can say, right, okay, that little bit I'm going to have back. And what I want to start by reading is one of the things which got partly missed out of the TV series, but came back in the book. And I mean, just to give a little bit of a background to it, um, uh, Natalie is, is wonderful at, at kind of changing your view about the ancient world by reimagining it, if reimagining it fictionally. Um, I suppose what, you know, I'm, I'm no fiction writer, um, but what I do want to do is to remind us how surprising the ancient world is to us. We take, we take Greek and Roman statues, for example, absolutely for granted. You know, you go to a museum, you see one more, one more, one more, and sort of the aim that I've got is to say, look, just try to remember when this was really radical, right? Yeah. And that's what this bit uh, that I'm going to read from one of the recent books 
does. And it's quite short, but it's a story which I think is not well enough known amongst people who enjoy classical antiquity for reasons that you'll very soon see. Actually, we're going to start serious. Okay, the, the title of this very short chapter is called The Stain on the Thigh, and you'll soon see why, okay? It's not nice. It's not, no, uh, sorry, you know, this has got a 16 plus health warning. Actually, it. it's 14, but they're very mature. Right, okay, fine, okay. <laughs> we start, cool, anyway. Greek and Roman writers repeatedly explored the idea that the finest form of art was a perfect illusion of reality. The most famous anecdote along these lines concerned two rival painters of the late 5th century BCE, Zeuxis and Parasios, who held a competition to decide which of them was the more skilled. Zeuxis painted a bunch of grapes, so realistic that the birds flew in to eat them. It was a triumph of illusion that promised to win the day. Parasios, however, painted a curtain, which Zeuxis, flushed with his success, demanded that he draw aside to reveal the painting beneath. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Zeuxis quickly realised his mistake and conceded victory. With the words, I deceived only the birds, Parasios deceived me. That's the clean bit of the story. <laughs> now, no trace of these paintings survive, but we do have evidence from a marble statue that was the subject of a similar, though far more disturbing story. That's a sculpture made by the artist Praxiteles around 330 BCE, a work now usually known as the Aphrodite of Cnidos, after the Greek town that was its first home. It was celebrated, this statue, in the ancient world as a milestone in art, since it was the first full-sized naked statue of a female figure. And that was after centuries in which sculptures of women had been represented only clothed. Praxiteles' original statue has long been lost, but it was so famous that hundreds of versions of, and replicas of it were made across the ancient world, and many of these have survived. Now, today, it is very difficult to see beyond the ubiquity of these images of the naked Greek female form, and to recapture how daring and dangerous it must have been for the original viewers in the 4th century BC, who were certainly not used to the public display of female flesh. Even the phrase, the first female nude, underplays the impact of this by implying that it was in some way an aesthetic or stylistic development that was just waiting to happen. In fact, whatever was driving Praxiteles' experiment, 
he was destroying conventional assumptions about art and gender in much the same way as Marcel Duchamp or Tracy Emin have done since. It's perhaps not surprising that the Greek town of Kos, the first client to whom the artist offered his new Aphrodite, said no thank you very much and chose a safely clothed version instead. That's the background. Simple nakedness was only part of it. In a decidedly erotic way, Praxiteles established that edgy relationship between a statue of a woman and an assumed male viewer never lost from the history of European art, as some ancient Greek viewers themselves were all too well aware. For this was an aspect of the sculpture dramatised in a memorable tale of a man who treated this goddess in marble as if she were a woman in flesh and blood. It's told in its fullest form in a curious essay around, written around 300 CE. Now, <laughs> the writer, believe it or not, reports an imaginary argument among three men, a celibate, a heterosexual, and a homosexual, who are having a tricky discussion about which kind of sex, if any, is best. And in, in, the discussion goes on, I have to say, for weeks, weeks, right? It's a very <laughs> difficult problem. You know, and the ancients knew it was a difficult problem. In the course of this interminable discussion, <laughs> they fetch up at Canidos. And they make for the biggest attraction in town, which is the famous statue of Aphrodite in her temple. Now, while the heterosexual is leering at her face and her front, and the one who prefers the love of men is peering at or up her backside, they spot a little mark in the marble at the top of the statue's thigh just near her buttocks. Now, with something of an art connoisseur, the celibate starts to sing the praises of Praxiteles, who had managed to hide this blemish in the marble in a very inconspicuous place. But the lady custodian of the temple interrupts him to say there was something much more sinister behind that mark. And she explains that a young man had once fallen passionately in love with the statue and managed to get locked in with her all night. And that little stain is the only surviving trace of his lust. This is better than fiction, isn't it, right? I'm just thinking about the friction. F friction. The friction. Better than friction. Not better than friction. <laughs> now, the heterosexual and the homosexual both gleefully claim that this proves their point. The one observes that even a woman in stone could arouse passion. The other 
that the location, the precise location of the stain shows that she had been taken from behind like a boy. They're having this big argument. <laughs> but the custodian interrupts again to insist that there was a tragic sequel. The young man who had done this went mad and threw himself off a cliff. No. Or he just maybe wanted to cool down. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, I think he had other ways. I think he did, yeah. There are several uncomfortable lessons in this story. It is a reminder of how troubling realism could be, how seductive, literally, it was to blur the boundary between lifelike marble and real-life flesh, and at the same time, how dangerous and foolish it was. It shows how a female statue can drive a man mad, and also how art can act as an alibi for what was, in some senses, rape, because don't let's forget, Aphrodite never consented. Uh, one of the things that you ex explore at length in the book is this idea of, of new ways of seeing and the shock of the new. And I looked at that statue, and you're right, we're so kind of used to seeing them. We're used to seeing them naked, these women, and, and have been forever. There's nothing special about it. And to try and imagine seeing them for the very first time, I mean, it must genuinely have been, I mean, almost traumatic, I imagine, for, for some people, and certainly offensive. But I think it's terribly easy to take the classical for granted. Yeah. You know, to think, okay, look, you know, it is, uh, and, you know, I'm as guilty as, of this as anybody. You go into a museum and you've got hundreds of these things. They're lined up, you know, they're you know, rather posh blokes in togas, they're naked women, they're, you know, they're heads, and we just think that they're wallpaper. Mm. And one of the things I think it's really important to do is to try and say, let's get back, everybody, mm. to wondering what it was like when this was new. Would women have been able to see that statue at the time, do you think, or would it have just been on offer to men? It's very hard to know. I mean, one of the really interesting things is what, we're, what the different regimes of viewing was. You know, yeah. could women see what men see? You know, we don't actually even know if women could go in 5th century classical Athens. We don't know whether they could go to the theatre. You know, so we have you know, these wonderful tragedies that, that Natalie's been talking about. We don't know who the audience was. Mm. And there's a very strong chance this is blokes only. Now, with art, you don't know. But what you can see is that there are revolutions here. And there are revolutions that, that have just become so old-fashioned to us. that We just don't think about them. Do you think that she, I mean, in, in the book, she's uh, like all those statues, kind of grey, you know, white marble. Do you think she would have been painted like other statues were? Or do you think she would have been dressed and then undressed like the Virgin Mary you <laughs> yes. talk about later yeah. on, who's got her kind of Barbie wardrobe? We have, really, we have really no clue. I mean, quite a lot of ancient statues were painted in ways that I'm sure were absolutely horrible 
to art. You know, we have learned we have learned to love white marble. Um, the ancients didn't love white marble. We think I, I like it. You know, I think thank God it's lost its colour. You know, because I can enjoy this. But you know, I also have to think. Hey, hang on. Some of this, how much of it was um, coloured? I don't know. Um, some of it was dressed. Um, you know, there were statues on the Acropolis in Athens, you know, that were regularly reclothed with, you know, they had their new dresses made. Mm. And, you know, it, this is a kind of way of thinking about statues out in the world uh, in a way that is hard for us now. They do exist, mm. but it's hard for us. And they're in dialogue, aren't they, these statues? They're talking to yeah, the people around them. Sometimes they can actually sing. You know, how they sung, we don't quite know. But, you know, these statues are active participants. You know, the world of ancient Greece and Rome is a world of human beings and of human beings in marble and ancient gods and goddesses in marble. And, you know, what I think is... You know, I, I, I do think I don't want to kind of look over um, defensive, but I think it was very interesting looking at the little bit of what I've just read. It was only a little bit that went on the television. Um, and the resistance to this, the resistance to the idea that actually there was a problem here about what statues were and were for, uh, and you know, people, you know, Quinton Letts in the Daily Whatever It Is, you know, said, Mary Beard says Praxiteles was a rapist. Right, no, I didn't. You know, I said Praxiteles made a revolutionary sculpture that prompted all kinds of ideas about the relationship between us and works of art. Mm. You know, and actually, you have to push it to its limits. Mm. You know, if you say to people, look, everybody, there's an interesting theoretical boundary between the statue and the human being. Mm. They'll say, they'll nod sagely and say, yeah, you know, fine. If you say, what that means is that people fuck statues. Yeah. Then they ought to say, right, Okay, there's a problem here. <laughs> you know, there's a problem. And we've gone on doing it, I have to say. I can what, give statue you fucking? I, a statue. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I'm hoping for a future television programme, yes. I'm hoping... I'm doing <laughs> statue it's, fuckers it's with Mary Beards. <laughs> Live from the British Museum. <laughs> It will be on BBC Two and it will be called something like The Erotics of Marble. <laughs> but actually, it's about statue fucking. <laughs> and it's really important. You know, it is really, really interesting because we don't, you know, we are always problematised about, you know, where to draw the line between flesh and you know, what is humanly made. Do you think that that moment, uh, that big change, that revolution, that shocking moment, encoded a different way of looking, particularly of men looking at women? Yeah, I think, you know, actually, um, you, you start to see at that moment, when we know almost nothing about Praxiteles, but what you start to see is the beginning of that sense of 
the ways in which an owned marble object can be erotic. You know, and you know, this Aphrodite, as I say, she doesn't she doesn't survive, but we have loads of copies of her, right down to coins. You know, she was copied in miniature and in large and everything. You know, and she is doing what every bit of erotic art has done ever since. She's partly covering herself up, mm. very modestly. She's partly pointing, you know, to what you want to see. You know, so, you know, the finger goes to the breast and the pubes. Yeah. And we're partly saying, oh, you know, this is... How modest, you know, she's just got out of her bath. Yes. And she's trying to, you know, she doesn't want to be seen. This is the goddess who doesn't want us to see her. So she's slightly covering herself up. But she's doing what everybody does. In, you know, in 50% of the paintings in the National Gallery, she's saying, look at me. Yeah. Look at me because you own me and you want to look at me. And do we, do we know very much about the, the differences at that time between representations of naked women and representations of naked men life-size? Like, been, from the beginning of Greek art, there have been naked men life-size. And there is something about nakedness in men which actually represents a... And it's a statement of power. It is a different sort of look at me. Yeah. And it's not look at me because this is where you might want to go and I'm covering it up and, you know, whatever. It's look at me because I am the phallic big bloke. But they don't have big willies. <laughs> I don't think you need to have a big willy to be a phallic bloke. <laughs> to be discussed at a later date. I think but, I, I, I mean, don't I, I, think size is all. <laughs> um, I think what's very interesting about, about the, the, the gaze of those men, G-A-Z-E, um, of, those, of those men and, 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 and the women, is to do with, to do with confrontation and to do with the, and to do with the way um, uh, men are allowed to hold the gaze of the viewer differently. And actually, you highlight this really well in the, in the book, that, that shift when women lose their clothes, they stop looking directly um, at, the, at the viewer. And they become objects. They become objects. They become objects. And, and I think that it, it's the tradition that we have inherited. We've, we've inherited, we've confronted it, we've subverted it. It's not, you know, we're not totally enthralled to that tradition. No, of course not. You know, thank heavens. You know, yeah. the, the last thing you'd want to be is, you know, simply enthralled to the ancient Greeks. Um, but... They, they provided a way, the kind of template for how we have learned to look. And I think, you know, and we lose that kind of sense of the, you know, okay, it's 2,500 years ago, but it was then radical. And unless we can begin to see how radical that was, we can't understand how we look at things. Mm. So, you know, or how to change how we look at things. Or how to change how we look at things. Yeah. You know, you, you have to confront the, what we have inherited. If you want to say, if you want to recognise what it is, and also begin to think about it differently. Um, let's now have another reading, please, if we can. Um, we've talked about the, the, the statue in that moment, that shock of the new. Let's now um, talk about Medusa. Yeah, well, th there's a kind of linked theme here because um, I'm interested in in 
this combination of the shock of the new, but also in our inheritance of all these classical tropes, yeah. often um, rather unthinking inheritance, which I think it helps us to look at. And I think the, the image of the snaky-locked Gorgon Medusa has such a big role in modern politics, particularly modern politics which is aimed at putting down women, um, that it's really worth thinking again about. So Medusa uh, was a monstrous creature with snakes for her hair and a deadly capacity to turn to stone anyone who looked at her face. It became the task of the Greek hero Perseus to kill this woman and he cleverly cut her head off using his shiny shield as a mirror so as to avoid having to look directly at her. It hardly needs Freud to see those snaky locks as an implied claim to phallic power. This is the classic myth in which the dominance of the male is violently reasserted against the illegitimate power of the woman and Western culture has repeatedly returned to it in those terms. The bleeding head of the Gorgon Medusa is a familiar sight among our own modern masterpieces, often loaded with questions about the power of the artist to represent an object at which no one should look. In 1598, Caravaggio did an extraordinary version of the decapitated head with his own features screaming in horror, blood pouring out, the snake still writhing. A few decades earlier, Benvenuto Cellini made a large bronze statue of Perseus, which still stands in the Piazza della Signoria in Florence. The hero is depicted trampling on the mangled corpse of Medusa and holding her head up in the air with the blood and the gunge pouring out of it. What's extraordinary is that this beheading remains even now a cultural symbol of opposition to women's power. Angela Merkel's features have again and again been superimposed on Caravaggio's image. And in one of the sillier outbursts in this vein, a column in the magazine of the Police Federation once dubbed Theresa May as the Medusa of Maidenhead. Quote, the Medusa comparison might be a bit strong, unquote, <laughs> the Daily Express responded. <laughs> we all know that Mrs May has beautifully quaffed hair. <laughs> May actually got off quite lightly. Compared with, say, Dilma Rousseff, who drew a very short straw indeed when she was president of Brazil 
and had to open a major Caravaggio exhibition <laughs> in Sao Paulo. The Medusa was naturally in it, and Rousseff, standing in front of the very painting, proved time and again an irresistible photo opportunity. It is, however, with Hillary Clinton that we see the Medusa theme at its starkest and its nastiest. Predictably away, Trump's supporters produced a great number of images showing Clinton with snaky gorgon locks. But the most horribly memorable of them adapted Cellini's bronze statue. Brilliant, because it also included the heroic male adversary and the killer of Medusa. All you needed to do was to superimpose Trump's face onto that of Perseus and give Clinton's features to the severed head. Actually, in the interests of taste, I suppose, the mangled body on which Perseus tramples in the original was omitted. It's true that one satiric stunt on US television later featured a fake severed head of Trump himself. But in that case, there was scandal and the female comedian concerned lost her job. By contrast, this scene of Perseus Trump brandishing the dripping, oozing head of Medusa Clinton was very much part of the everyday domestic American decorative world. You could buy this image on T-shirts and tank tops, on coffee mugs, on laptop sleeves and on tote bags. Now, it may take a moment or two to take in that normalisation of gendered violence. But if you are ever doubtful about the extent to which the exclusion of women from power is culturally embedded, or if you are unsure of the continued strength of classical ways of formulating and justifying it, well, I give you Trump and Clinton, Perseus and Medusa, and I rest my case. I know that you got to spend some time with Hillary Clinton, <laughs> which must have been thrilling. It was amazing. I mean, you know, I thought, what me? You know, what me? And she's actually really not. I mean, you do, I have to say, you do have to get her off some bits of Russian bots, yeah. just occasionally. She's very keen on denouncing Russian bots. She's just a great feisty, sorry, feisty is frightful cliche, but I'm going to say it, feisty, a straight, talking, funny woman. Why she fucked up the election, I don't understand. Russian bots, I think she would say. <laughs> well, but, uh, she, would, she would say Russian bots. Are you, in a, are you in an amazing WhatsApp group with her now where you just sort of like, you know... No, 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 no. No, no access we're, to we're, Hillary we're, after no, that special no, time. No, I've, I've met her twice. 
and I thought she was damn good. She tells a great story about you, um, which I saw her tell at the, the Cheltenham Festival. Um, I went to see uh, Hillary Clinton speak and the entire front row was, was empty, taken up by her, look at the glittery trainers. Sorry, yeah. The sparkly, age-inappropriate shoes. Um, and the entire front row was, was completely empty um, and, um, and there, you know, Hillary was in the wings and all around were these men with guns who shouldn't have been sexy but they were, it was a bit hot and, um, and we were kind of all waiting for, waiting for, for Hillary to come, come on and I was thinking all the while about actually about that, that Medusa thing and she, she, she came on in there she was and she was just incredible and she talked first of all about you and the story you told her about Telemachus and the very first time a woman is told yeah. to shut up. So let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah, and I mean, uh, she's great, actually. And uh, I, mean, I think one of the things you can say about... She gives you credit for the story. Which yeah, is she's good. bloody generous. You know, yeah. most people rip you off. Most people in Hillary Clinton's position, you know, listen to what you say, and then they repeat the anecdote as yeah. if they thought of it. And she doesn't. And... You know, all credit to her. No, she footnoted you in that discussion. Yeah, yes, she did. Um, but, but but it's, I, a great, I, I, it's a great story. Yeah. Um, because, and I think it's a story that is, you know, it's both deeply depressing and fantastically reassuring at the same time. You know, you go back to the very beginning of the Western tradition of literature. You go back to the Odyssey, right? Okay, not quite to the Iliad, but to the Odyssey. And what do you find? you find that the, the silencing of women in any kind of public discourse is right there, right from the very beginning. You know, here we are, Homer is conjuring up the scene in Odysseus's palace in Ithaca. Now, Odysseus is still um, trying to come back from Troy, you know, you know, via several sexual dalliances on the way, it has to be said. Um, and he's coming back to his faithful wife, Penelope, who's not having sexual dalliances. She's um, weaving. She's weaving. <laughs> and she's got a house full of these appalling folks, you know, you know, who, you know, who want to fuck her, basically. Uh, and she's saying no. And she's also got this frightfully wimpy teenager son, Telemachus. And part of the, the point of the Odyssey, though it's one that we tend now to forget, mm. is that what it shows is that Telemachus, the son of Odysseus and Penelope, grows up. Um, but at this point, uh, Penelope is, is still waiting for Odysseus. And one day she comes down from her upper room um, and she finds the bard, the resident bard, and he's going on about what a terrible time the people like Odysseus are having getting back home. And Penelope says quite reasonably, you know, please could you play something a bit more cheerful? You know, it's a bit of a downer, right? Um, and before that can happen, this wimpy teenager, sorry teenagers in the audience, but he is a wimpy teenager, he comes up and he says, mother, Speech, and the word he uses, public speech, is man's business. Go upstairs. And off she goes. And somehow, you know, I read the Odyssey probably 20 times before I noticed that. But actually, that is what, in a sense, sets off our view that women don't 
speak in public. It's not, you know, this is not just the problem of the last 100 years or 200 years. This kind of view that women are silent is something that we have inherited from the classical past. And you know, I am by no means the first person to notice this. I was a, a friend of mine the other day pointed out to me that you know, in the 1850s, Engels was writing about this. He said, look at the bloody Odyssey, guys. They're shutting women up. Now, Engels was quite good at shutting women up himself, as, as it happens, but at least he was attuned to it. Uh, and if you want to say, look, where does our idea that women don't have a voice come from? Well, partly it comes from all those assumptions that we've got from, go, you know, from going right back. No, there is no woman in this country, I would claim, who doesn't recognise that scene of Telemachus shutting his mum up and saying, shut the fuck up, mother. You know, I'm speaking here. It's not always our sons that do it to us, you know. You know, it's our bosses, our fathers, our, you know, brothers, you know, our colleagues. But every woman in this country knows that women get shut up and they've been shut up for almost 3,000 years. Yeah. And no longer, guys. You know. <laughs> So, oh, questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, no questions that. That's, you know. Cool. I have some here. Oh, um, and we've got four microphones out in the audience, so I think the lights might come up in a moment. Um, so, this first one is from Kate, um, and she says, Mary, who is your feminist hero or heroine, Kate, really? But anyway. Oh, God, it's, this, is, this is really hard. But you do, I think, always think back in this to the person who first opened your eyes. You know, and partly that's my mum in my case, frankly, but... Uh, how uh, did she do that? Uh, she wouldn't be shut up. She just <laughs> would not be shut up. <laughs> and I think she taught me not to be shut up too, but you know, think it's, she did. it's very hard to me. <laughs> But, you know, I know this is very unfashionable to say because I know all the things that Germaine Greer has said that people don't like, and I know why they don't like it. But I was in my teens when I read The Female Eunuch and no-one had spoken to me about women like that before. And, you know, I will, you know, I, I think, you know, I would smack Germaine on the bottom for quite a lot of the things she said <laughs> recently, but I would still say... I owe a lot to you. Okay. you know? I remember. I remember being. I'm sorry. This is going to be embarrassing to the guys, but I remember reading the female eunuch, and she 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 had this really revolting bit. But it, I thought it really hit home. She said, "How many women have tasted their own menstrual blood?" And he's like, "Ooh, that's why." Why has nobody asked us that before? You know, that is, it is absolutely, it totally sums up, not, I'm not here talking about women's remoteness from, from the voice, but women's remoteness from their own bodies. 
And, you know, and actually, of course, we haven't, you know, of course we've not. But it just showed you. Uh, and it, for me, it was a complete eye-opener. And I went, ugh. And, but at the same time as I went, ugh, I realised that she was talking to me about how distanced I was from my buddy. And I think, you know, she can be an absolute stupid old cow. <laughs> but she taught us a lot, so don't let's knock her entirely. <laughs> Our favourite trans exclusionary radical feminist. Uh, so I take, I know, I take a oh, question from. I take a question from the audience. Um, I can't actually see the I lights. Or, the lights thing. are so strange. So um, oh, questions from are the questions at the back because I missed people last time. Yes, you. Sorry. Apparently, I missed you last time. You're very vigorous now. Go for it. The microphone is coming to you. Here you are. Hello. Hello, um, <laughs> I just wanted to say um, that I think that your work is really inspiring and I got my mum your book, Women in Power, for Christmas and she loves it and she's been reading it and she always quotes it to me and then she <laughs> saw like the opportunity to go on this trip with my school and she was like, you have to go! <laughs> she was like, film it for me. <laughs> so yeah, I just no wanted filming. to say. Well, thank great. you very much. <laughs> I know, I forgot. I did take like a 10 second video. It's fine. So. I think it must, it must be quite irritating when you give your mum a present and then she quotes it back to you. <laughs> I know, I don't need to read it now. <laughs> now, what was your question? Um, my question was, it was actually for... It's actually, sorry, I forgot. It was actually for Natalie earlier. Oh. <laughs> but, no, 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 but I think you might you be able to answer your it too. From the first half, you really know where you go. You, left, you read that book. It was about um, Greek mythology and the kind of classics. I'm um, fairly confident Mary can answer it. <laughs> I mean, but I'm just going to go out on I'll a try. limb. <laughs> I'll try. Um, I just wanted to ask if, uh, as like so many of the writers which are more famous, like Virgil and um, Homer, uh, male, do you think that's influenced how their characters are depicted as women and if there's more emphasis on male characters over female? There must be, you yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, I think that... Um, I think Natalie and I had a, a similar view here that may be different answers in, in specifics. You know, the, what is both deeply frustrating but brilliantly challenging about the ancient world is how you get back to any female view. Yeah. Now, I think the only way to do it really is fiction. And I think that it, it, my kind of academic life has gone through a period when, you know, when I was an undergraduate and graduate student and young lecturer, we really thought there was a woman's view that you could reconstruct about the ancient world. There's, no, there isn't. There isn't because there is no, with very minor exceptions, women's writing. So I think that what's exciting about now is that you know, people are starting to say, well, look, let's, let's actually think about that in fictional terms. Let's wonder about what the women's perspective on things was. Yeah. We can't, no, you know, when, if, if what you really wanted to do was study a culture in which you could really get to the lives of women, you'd be bonkers to choose ancient Greece and Rome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd just be frustrated, you know, go to the 18th century, you know, if that's what you want to do. 
But I think what is interesting is that there is a space for fiction. And that as often, the really, really most deeply misogynistic societies in the world, in which I would count not just us, but the Greeks and the Romans, they are also often the societies that worry about that misogyny most interestingly. So, you know, yes, we have male literature from a male point of view, but we have in the ancient world, and this is what makes it interesting, we have men wondering and, and contesting and feeling anxious about that male dominance. And that gives the modern fiction writer, like Natalie or, or Madeleine Miller, or Lott, it gives them the space to really get in there and explore. You know, now, you can't do it as a historian, you know? There, there is no way. Would you, you know? never be tempted? You never to be tempted. To write fiction, I'd be hopeless. I'd be hopeless at writing fiction, you know. I, my narratives and my dialogue, it'd be so clunky. You know, <laughs> everybody would be deeply, you know, Natalie read, you know, her stuff out and I thought, oh, blimey, you know, I can never write that. You know, I write sort of analytical prose. You know, and everybody would think, oh, God, be it, you know, go back to writing history. I wish more male writers would think that. Um, about their <laughs> I, think, I think that's true. I do. I think, I do. I think a hell of a lot of writers ought to realise that writing... Fiction is a skill. Um. <laughs> I'd quite like that on a tea towel. Um, did, no, you read, did you read Mary Renault? You must have read lots of oh, Mary Renault. Yes. Yeah, she's I delicious. I loved The Last of the Wine. The Last of the Wine the is last brilliant. The Last of the Wine was brilliant. I couldn't, I really didn't like so much all those kind of deep prehistoric ones, <laughs> yeah. but I can't stand bloody mother goddesses. You know, there's one thing I hate as a mother goddess. <laughs> That's my second tea towel, I think. Uh, 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 can I take a question from the top? Because uh, don't throw yourself. Go. Yes. Oh, Hiya. blimey. This... Um, hello. I'm, hello. Um, I'm an English teacher at uh, a comprehensive school in Hampshire, and I wanted to. We have no classics at school, sadly. Uh, and I want to know what your view was about the fact that very little uh, classics, in all its manifestations, is taught in any state schools. I and mean, I know classics for all is is ramping up and doing a really great job. But what is your view about the importance of having that as part of the curriculum? Um. I mean, I'm biased, right? OK. Um, I, I think it's crucially important. Uh, uh, and I'm slightly more optimistic than other people would be. I think that, you know, it's not only classics for all that is doing stuff in, in getting particularly Latin back in the curriculum, but there's Edith Hall's project from King's College London, which is really... Um, getting classical studies, classical civilization back into the cu curriculum. I mean, I think um, <laughs> part of my reason for being optimistic is that classics has always actually been, uh, it's, certainly in terms of the ancient languages, it's always been a minority option. I mean, you know, we think of it, you know, we think 200 years ago, everybody wrote Latin and Greek. They didn't. Only a tiny minority of toffs did, you know? So, so, you know, so don't let's imagine that somehow 
um, a golden age has been lost, um, because it's not. And I also think that there's something very odd about classics, that it's, that, you know, all of us, I think, tend to invest in an extremely nostalgic image. We always think that if we were to go back 100 years, people would know more classics than us. Mm. Now, actually, people have been thinking that since about 200 AD. You know? <laughs> if only. Now, and people say now, and I think um, in your discussion with Natalie, there was a bit of this. You know, that there's a great revival of classics. Every... Every yeah. generation Thinks believes rediscovering. that they're rediscovering it. Yeah. That's why it's interesting. You know? And people say, now there are all sorts of things that we're really getting these new kind of new novels and you know classics is coming back. Well actually, you know, as you know, Mary Renault suggests, there you know, classics has always been there, but we every generation has always flattened itself that it was rediscovering it. You know, when I was a kid, I watched I, Claudius on the telly, didn't read the novel, but the telly was bloody brilliant, you know, um, and I read a bit of Mary Renault, and I had Michael Grant's biographies of the Roman emperors, and they were best sellers. You know, now they say, you know, people say to me, they say, God, you know, you're part of a revival of the classics. I'm just part of a long tradition in which people have said, look, this is interesting. And so, although I think one has to be ever watchful, and one particularly has to be watchful about government and educational policy, which tries to remove this, you know, and I think uh, constant vigilance is necessary. Yes. I think we've also got to be aware the you know, classics has always survived, you know? Because it's interesting. That's why it does. It's bloody interesting and it speaks to us. Still does. There's a question from a person at the top up there who, um, I don't know who it was, but there was, I think, are, they, are you at the front or the, are you, oh, at the front, there you go. Hiya, go Hi. ahead. Um, I was just wondering, what do you think are the main influences of how women today are viewed in society and how do you think uh, what do you think are the best ways we can challenge and change these possibly negative stereotypes mm. a small uh, question uh, just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank we'll, you we'll do, we won't do the five hour answer <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. um, I, I think this is partly because I'm an academic you know, and this might seem you know, analytical and not policy-driven and all the rest. I think that we just have to listen harder to how we talk about and how we listen to women. We have to think about um, not just the practical ways that we support gender equality and I think those are very important but I think look you know when I was in, well, you know when I was a student and you know I thought that somehow uh, what we needed to do was we needed to have more workplace nurseries we needed to have equal pay we needed to have maternity leave all those things are important and we haven't yet got them you know equal pay is still you know a mirage right um, but I think that 
more important now for you know for women in the West, and I'm not talking here uh, outside that. I think you have to say, look, the battle really is in our heads, isn't it? It's the battle is in how we talk about women, how we think about women, how we have learned, you know, you know, for centuries to think about women. I no. I don't think I don't think our sense of you know women as still unheard citizens. I don't think that's natural. I think we've learnt it, and I think what we need to do is we just need to call it out, and we also need to call it out with humour. Um, you know, I think I think recent feminism has, for my taste, and of course you know I'm a kind of you know, comfortable old lady, and so it's, you know, fine for me. But, but I think that recent feminism has tended to, to trade a bit too much uh, in outrage and in crossness rather than in ridicule. And I think most guys who think that women are second-class citizens, and there are many who do, uh, I think they're funny. I think they're silly. And I want to laugh at them. You know, I don't, I don't want to bother to get cross with them. I want to think that they are ridiculous. And a bit of kind of ridicule, satire and humour will help. But I think also listening to the language we use. I mean, you know, an example I use in the book, but it's a terribly obvious one, is, you know, just think of the, the English adjective ambitious. Um, if you say of a man, it's really good, isn't it? You know, he's thrusting, you know, penile, you know, it's going places. <laughs> if you say it of a woman, it's slightly suspicious. It's pushy, yeah. you know, it's pushy. Princess pushy, you know, ambitious. And I think that the more we share those images and those understandings of how we speak about men and women, you know, and that is, you know, going another stage beyond what I think is absolutely essential, you know, all those practical things about equal pay, etc. I think that's where we need to, to take our, you know, to really get to grips with this. And that's where going back to Odysseus, you know, Telemachus and Penelope is important. You know, that this isn't, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to live to see equality. You know, I've lived, you know, I'm 63, I have seen a revolutionary change in women's opportunities in all kinds of ways. But we're a long way from equality and I will never live to see it. Because what we've got to do now is we've got to think about uh, our assumptions, how we think about women and why we think and how we have learned to do that. And it'll take another, you know, well, Reasonable estimate, 200 years. Oh, God. So none of you will live to see it either, guys. Just, you know. And on that thrillingly positive note that none of us, none of us will live to see equality, please join me in thanking <laughs> Professor Mary Beard. <laughs> thank you, Mary. Thank you to the Theatre Royal, to all of you for being here, and Natalie Haynes as well. Mary's not leaving. She's not leaving.
Very nice. Thank you all for being here. You can check out more Star Wars on Facebook. See you again.